Welcome to Product Decoded, a podcast where we share advice and best practices on how to build and scale great products from the world's top product experts. This podcast is produced by Spiro Ventures and Product Leader Summit. Spiro Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm that is helping entrepreneurs build a future that belongs to everyone. Product Leader Summit's mission is to create a community for product leaders and founders to learn from one another. On today's episode of Product Decoded, our guest is Todd Yellen, VP of Product at Netflix, who was interviewed by Product Decoded co-host Gib Biddle, Product EIR and former VP of Product at Netflix. Thanks so much for listening. Now let's get started. Welcome. My name is Gibson Biddle, and I am an executive in residence of product, which means I'm a three-day-a-week product leader at lots of Silicon Valley companies. I'm an advisor. I'm also a teacher. And I'm super excited to welcome Todd Yellen. Hi, Todd. Gib, how's it going? Good. Todd's the VP of product at Netflix. He's been at Netflix for 12 years and has helped Netflix in its transition from DVD to streaming, from a U.S.-based product to an international product, and lately from a merchandiser of other folks' content to its own original content. And for context here, we're pals. Uh, We used to work together at a startup called Family Wonder, and then I actually hired Todd into Netflix 2005, 2006, and now he's in my job, and the job is substantially bigger than the one I ever took on. So welcome, Todd. Thank you, Gib. Very exciting. This is a a huge reunion for the two of us. Isn't it? We just need a beer. Yes, yes, (laughs) but you told me no drinking. As an EIR, you have a lot of responsibilities. (laughs) It's true. Uh, One of the through lines of Todd's career, just so folks know, is he's been consistently engaged in personalization, which really is about helping Netflix members find the movies they'll love. What are some of the other big themes that you've been engaged in in your career at Netflix? Yeah, so personalization has definitely put bread on my family's table, which is exciting because it's a huge challenge with the internet explosion of content. Um, And our world of Netflix with a catalog of thousands of titles, people are only going to look at a few dozen. So putting the right thing in front of the right person at the right time is huge. Um, But we look at other things as well. It's overall how we touch the Netflix experience, everything from how they sign up. We look at the sign-up flow, you know, everything from pricing, payment method, um, making the flow easy, making it very, making it work in Japan as well as it works in Brazil and Sweden. And then there's other things like the actual user interface, how it's designed. Um, should we use a, you know, a traditional virtual box shot? Should we use auto-playing video to promote a piece of content and have people understand it? So it's a lot of design, a lot of technology that meets a brain, hopefully, a brain-dead experience of helping people enjoy entertainment content. Cool. It sounds super cool. Big and lots and lots of experiments. Can you take me back a little bit in your career? What were you doing before Netflix? Um, okay, I'll go way back. I'll go back before I even I knew Mr. Gib Biddle. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so um, I was a filmmaker. So I've loved movies ever since I was shooting Super 8 movies on the hills of Long Island, an island actually can't have hills, um, many years ago. And I went to USC film school. I was a documentary filmmaker. I was a film critic. I was a production assistant. I was a casting assistant. I was screamed at for $300 a week back in Hollywood back in the day. So um, many things. I have entertainment and video content flowing through my blood. That's awesome. Uh, tell, Tell us about the first, I think you did a drama film, correct? I did. So, um... 
after film school, I came out of school and I realized that where's my trust fund that I could fund my independent film for? And I realized, what? No trust fund, just student debt? So that's when I shot some documentary stuff, but I always had a dream of, I wanted to shoot a feature film. I wanted to actually write and direct a feature film. And after working with you, Gib, during the days of the internet gold rush. Of, and then the internet blender. Yes, yes, that was the blender. <laughs> it got ugly. It got from San Francisco, it was a bustling, wonderful city, to the uh, tumbleweeds were rolling down the streets in 2001, and a lot of people were out of work. Yep. And so out of work, it was time to head to those different hills, L.A., the Hollywood Hills. Yep. <laughs> and um, I wanted to make an, a feature film, and I leveraged a lot of the connections I had in the Silicon Valley days that we shared back in 99, 2001. And a lot of those people still had deep pockets despite the big crash. Yeah. And I found some people to help me fund my dream of making an indie film. I was in post-production when, listen carefully, you came knocking at the door. And you said, Todd, how about the internet again? How, how well's the filmmaking life being? And um, it happened to be I glanced over at my wife, Jen, who you know? Yep. And she was pregnant with our second child, independent filmmaker, one child. I can make that work. Two children, I said, Gib, get me on a plane. I'm happy to talk to you about working at Netflix. Yeah, well, I can remember on the other side, I was totally enamored because to make ends meet, you were basically coaching wealthy kids on how to do well in the SAT. So I had an instinct that you probably had uh, the math and analytical chops required for Netflix. And to close the loop here, I couldn't talk you into it. And Reed Hastings, who, who had a private plane, said, let's fly down. It was going to be my first ride on a private plane. And then you called up and said you were underway. So I missed the plane. Uh, Blame Jen in the pregnancy for that. Yeah. It's not my fault. Yeah. If I would have known, you would have been on the private Total. plane. Okay, so tell us um, what excites you about your job today. Yeah, it's it's really – when I got there and you hired me, I thought, like, I barely worked in an office. This isn't the life for me. I like the freelance filmmaker life. I'm going to be there two years tops, get a regular paycheck, put a few dollars in the bank account, and leave. But I've been there, you know, in Silicon Valley. This is gold watch territory being there 12 <laughs> years because um, I get excited about revolutionizing the way people consume video entertainment around the world. Yeah. That's, that's super cool. And what drives you crazy today about your job? Um, what drives me crazy? You know, when we were working together years back, it was a small company where you knew everyone. Walk down the hallway, walk over to get a snack in the kitchen. And the snacks were a lot worse back then, by the way. <laughs> um, now we've gotten to be a bigger company. And, you know, I don't know everyone around. In fact, a lot of people I don't know. And it's... It, it what we've lost for that intimacy we've gained in the impact there's yep. even more impact on folks globally but as as a company a small company turns to a medium-sized company starts heading toward towards bigger company land there are ups and downsides yeah well so netflix is legendary for its netflix culture deck and one of the the key components is as the company grows you don't want to fold in a lot of rules and processes you just want to hire wicked bright people um, is, is that been working out, or are there occasionally challenges on, on, on how that works? So talent density is a rallying cry at Netflix still. We're still um, very selective. God knows why I've been there 12 years, but we're still <laughs> very selective in who we have at the company. Um, and that does work out, and that does keep me and hopefully my team and others at Netflix quite challenged. 
So I'm proud of that accomplishment. Yep. But still, no one's Rain Man and no one can memorize a whole phone book. Or yep. There's one Rain Man, I'll say. No one can memorize a whole phone book. And knowing everyone and being able to build those relationships becomes increasingly challenging, but also increasingly important because now we have, not only do we have our big headquarters in Los Gatos, Silicon Valley, we have a huge office now in Southern California, and I found myself shuttling up and down the coast. Yep. And we have offices in Amsterdam and Sao Paulo and mm -hmm. London and Tokyo and Singapore. So it just it changes the whole landscape. So you do a talk for all the new employees that's called Smashing Idols. Uh, and I, because I'm not in the building, I can't see it. But can you tell me a little bit about it? Because it sounds fascinating. Yeah, I've always been um, fancied myself an iconoclast meaning um, the status quo sometimes rankles me, try to challenge myself, try to challenge others. So I begin that talk, I really want to encourage new employees, and I begin that talk, and, and this is, I really mean this, by saying, they roll me out once a month to give you guys this talk, dust me off and pull me out of the closet because I'm history. I'm jaded. I've, my mind has become like concrete and I see things in certain ways. But you guys are the fresh blood. You guys are going to help us remain, maintain the edge we have, maintain the risk-taking we have, and so forth. And so I recount some tales about when I was a young and upcoming Turk at Netflix um, the idols that I smashed, the conventional wisdom at Netflix that um, I found that I didn't believe. So in our freedom and responsibility culture, I tested. Um, I debated with Reed, our CEO, and many others at the company, and they won. And so there were new ideas when I was the fresh blood. Mm -hmm. And now I get less joy because it happens less frequently <laughs> of me coming up with those brilliant new eyes ideas that challenge the status quo but i like to encourage others on the team to figure out challenge something be willing to fall on your face dust yourself off and get up and try something else new so can you give me some examples of some of that sort of conventional wisdom that was just plain wrong sure so I'll give you one when I was um, the fresh blood, and I'll give you one where I am the establishment you're, man. You're the old fart. <laughs> so, the exactly. <laughs> exactly. I've and been how there. they challenged me in one, which is, which is great. <laughs> so in, an example would be when I got to Netflix, what I'm fond of saying is we genuflected underneath the stars. And I don't mean the stars to help navigate across the high seas that are light years away. I mean the five-star rating system that the company was very fond of. That was, if you guys ever see out there a five-star interactive widget on the web where you can click on it and rate something, that goes way back to before I got to Netflix and before Gib, you were at Netflix, and that was invented there. And that was a big deal because the whole idea was you know, with all of back then DVDs, and I know they feel like Pony Express at this point, but there's those shiny round discs if you don't know what they are. Um, back then it was around DVDs and to help select the right DVD for you, we'd try to we would do everything to have people encourage them to rate. Please, we'd be on our knees practically in the UI trying to show all the benefits of rate on this five-star system. Is this a five? Is this a one? And based on that, we felt we could personalize better and show them the right content. But there's a problem with that. And, you know, I, I saw that and I wasn't the only one, but I was particularly passionate about it, which is, sure, it's easy to say I'm going to give five stars to Hotel Rwanda 
Schindler's List, mm -hmm. The Inconvenient Truth, mm -hmm. and all the really heavy, profound, moving films that you probably want to watch once but not twice, and they're disturbing. Mm -hmm. And back in those ancient DVD days, they're the kinds of things that would sit on someone's shelf, they'd order it, and they would just not end up watching it very often. And then there would be a lighter, goofy, silly, you know... Uh, I would you know, never admit to watching one of those stupid movies. Yeah, back in the day, yeah. my favorite example was Paul Blart Mall Cop. And yep. it was super popular, but it wasn't the most cerebral um, highbrow movie, let's say. Mm -hmm. But it was really popular. And so people wouldn't give that five stars, but they'd watch that more, you know, more likely. And so the big breakthrough pushing is like, it's not about the five stars. It's about people's behavior. It's what they tend to watch is much more important than what they say they like. Yeah. So we got much more into behavioral um, metrics. We broke down the five stars. Now, you know, Netflix has a thumbs up, thumbs down, which is helpful, but it's by far, you know, less important than what they actually click play on, which yeah. tells you volumes. Well, it was a huge show. I mean, going from being able to see what they actually watch, you know, that, that I'm, I'm sure there's a few people that go four minutes into a movie and then click out, and you've gotten a strong signal of what they appreciate or don't. Uh, but that's tricky. No, yeah. that's a good one. That is, yeah. This is where, like, good. machine learning and complexity comes in. Because, okay, um, Gib, name a movie or a TV show. Pick a card, any card that you like. Doesn't matter what. Oh, I just watched... Um, Let's see. What's the one with Bateman? Justin Bateman? Um, Jason, Jason Bateman, Ozark. The TV Ozark. show Ozark on Netflix. I, I okay. loved Ozark. Okay, Ozark. Yeah. yeah. Great show. It's about money laundering. It's about an edgy character, a kind of close cousin of Breaking Bad, if Correct. you're a fan of that. Really popular. Ozark's a really popular show on Netflix. This is this show is brought to you by Ozark and all the fine fans of Ozark. Yes. <laughs> Kidding around. You can cut that if you want or leave it. But, um, okay, so imagine... You came to Netflix, you saw Ozark, you clicked play on it, but you abandoned it after four minutes. There's two ways you could read that signal. You could read that signal like, oh my God, don't show him anything that's edgy, suspenseful, violent, dysfunctional family. That's not his thing. He abandoned yep. this. Or you can say the opposite of the fact that he clicked play on this is a signal that he wants that kind of content. Yep. Maybe this wasn't the exact right execution of what he wants. So these are tricky things that you know take a lot of subtlety. It takes a lot of math Got and data it. science to get to that answer. Got it. And then just what does a thumb up or a thumb down really mean against the the explicit uh, the implicit data that we just described in my experience with Ozark? Exactly. Yeah. And so, but l let me. I'm fond of. I have fun. Um, kind of a subversive pleasure of talking about the things where they smashed the heck out of me yeah. and where they were right and I was yeah. wrong. And I'll give, I'll give you a good example of that okay. that happened a couple of years ago. So Netflix, if you think of Netflix, you think of Rose. You think of Rose on whether you're watching Netflix on a TV UI, mobile, tablet, the website, wherever you're watching, you know, we have these personalized rows. And the way we used to do it is something like this. There would be a template a structure that we would fall into where maybe your first row would be your list, formerly yep. called Q back in the old days. Quay. It would be the, the Quay is pronounced mm -hmm. by some. Mm -hmm. um, you'd have your list. Then the second thing would, might be most popular on Netflix. Maybe the third row would be you know, titles because you watch this, titles similar to what you enjoyed. Then after that, you would get a specific genre. You might get... Uh, dark dramas totally with drug-fueled characters, and I might get wacky comedies. Um, and it was, a, it was a fixed template. And then the idea was thrown out, 
How about if you, not everyone got the same fixed template? How about if not everyone got new releases as their fifth row? Yep. How about for you, if you got it as your second row, um, someone else got it as their eighth row, and someone else didn't even see it on their main Netflix page, whatever device you're on? And that just sounded insane to me. It's like, yep. they want their list. How can we, like, screw with the users so much and throw some of them? We're going to throw the list on the bottom and some mm -hmm. on the top. New releases, they're going to go hunting for it. They might not even see it. Oh, customer service, it's going to light up. They're going to call. They're going to complain. This is going to tank. But we have this beautiful thing. Go A-B test it. So what we did, and by the way, I wasn't, like, throwing myself in the way of that oncoming train with mm -hmm. the product manager on my team who wanted to test that on the yep. algorithm side. I was more like... Go ahead. It'll be a good learning opportunity for you to see when Isn't that one that fails. Cute? Yeah, they, you know, it's adorable <laughs> and it's important to to find your way. Um, no, but it was it was tested. So a couple of hundred thousand people were getting the existing experience with a template approach where they no new releases. Thank God, it's on your fifth row. And then a bunch of people were it was floating rows, and it would float in a personalized way. So not only wow. would the titles float, yep. but the rows would float and. Customer service, not a peep. Not a peep. Yeah, it's all good. And so I, viewing went up. Oh, I, I, that, that's amazing. So I imagine a lot of that took you up the learning curve into the world of machine learning. And yeah, what was that like for you? Well, it's funny. Years ago, when I got to Netflix, and you know, by any other name, it was like neural networks were a hot term back in that day. This is circa like 2006, and. I wanted to explore these worlds of getting, since my first job was focused on personalization, I wanted to find, you know, work with the engineering team to find out, and the data teams, to find out, well, how about if we leverage neural networks, machine learning, artificial intelligence, like I said, by any other name. So I was talking to this engineer on the team. We were a much smaller company. And I was throwing out all my ideas and there was, it was a time when I was on summer vacation. I was throwing these ideas out on the phone to him. I was super excited. And he so wanted to make me happy as the product manager of this. And he so wanted to do the right thing. But he had no freaking idea how to execute this. He had no background in this whatsoever. And we didn't have really any experts in that world. Um, and I remember so you used to call it salt and pepper testing a little bit of this a little bit of that yeah yeah, let's, let's, yeah exa <laughs> exactly it, it's very like you know the, the gourmet chef in the restaurant Correct. sprinkling this and that yeah. but we you know get to the point after a while where you build up a reputation as a company people more and more want to work and follow the mission of your company and your yeah. brand and so and by the way there was a whole environment changing not only in silicon valley but around the world around technology of machine learning got hot, yep. really expensive. It's yep. a great field to go into if yep. you have kids, yeah. but or yourself if you want to you make listening, a career Kelsey pivot. and Brittany. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Samara and Oliver, you too. Yeah. And so um, then we started getting deeper and deeper mathematicians. Suddenly, people were working for me who had not one, not two, but three degrees in mathematics from MIT, and we were able to execute much more complex algorithmic approaches to how to do something that's really simple. Allow you as a consumer to be brain dead on your couch, yep. get over your bad day at work, you know, melt into your upholstery mm -hmm. and watch what you want to mm -hmm. watch and make it easy to find what you want to watch. So now we're on the topic of some of the hot trends with uh, machine learning and AI. What about voice? Are you beginning to experiment there? No, voice, voice is a big one. So um, goes back the first voice UI that we worked with goes back a number of years. You know, these 
Think about a lot of these technologies that are hot that everyone wants to work right. on. The question is timing, right? Yeah, totally. I tell my team, do not be three steps ahead. <laughs> be a half a step ahead. Because when yeah. you're three steps ahead, you waste a lot of money and resources on stuff that doesn't yep. see the light of day. When you're a half step behind, then you lose your job. No, it's mm -hmm. not that hard. But if you're a half step ahead, you're yep. the hero because then you have a successful test. And, you're, and there's two things you have to keep in mind, I'll get the voice, I promise. There's two things you should keep in mind when you want to stay a half, maybe a full step ahead, mm -hmm. maybe a full step, not three. And those things are both, where is the technology at? How many consumers does it reach? And is it robust enough to do a good job at what it intends to do? And then equally important, is consumer appetite ready for that technology? And will they want to adopt whatever you're doing? So voice is an interesting one. It started for us with Xbox Connect, where you'd be able to say, you know, go to Xbox and go, you know, and you'd always have to say, and you still do if you use it, you yeah. know, Xbox, pause, Xbox, play, Xbox, go to Netflix. And that was the first experiment, and it wasn't widely used. You know, and this was going back, you know, four or five years. Yeah. And now, and then Siri comes along and Google Voice, which that technology is getting more and more impressive and more sensitive to, you know, really picking up intent yeah. and really deciphering out so my poor kid wouldn't be screaming at the thing and they wouldn't understand his voice, but they didn't understand mine. And so what we're thinking now is we work with many, many device partners, whether it's Apple or Samsung or Microsoft Xbox or Google, of course, in many different aspects, and many others. And so a lot of them, obviously, are experimenting with voice, and it's becoming more and more common. It's still not like, it's not like grandma's using voice, maybe super technophile mm -hmm. grandma. I don't want to stereotype grandma, because grandpa, you're just as guilty. But um, more and more people are using it, and it's getting more comfortable. So I'd still call it early adopter, inching its way into middle adopter, for voice, and we're starting to work with our partners more and more. So um, I just got, I have so many devices in my house. Mm -hmm. And so I have an um, Amazon Fire TV. Mm -hmm. I was just playing with their voice and just yep. watching the progress. Yeah, yep. Um, a quickie, which is uh, one of my theories is that product leaders love to build stuff uh, and not only just build the product, but build the team, build a company, and in your case, helping to build an industry, which is internet uh, TV. Uh, what's, what excites you today? You know, when, when I sort of force rank, build the product, build the team, build the company, build the industry. How do you think about that? I, that's a oh, great question. Um, I have to check all those boxes because I want to make sure a job's waiting for me when I go in tomorrow morning. Yeah. But if I had to pick, if I force rank yeah, gun yeah. to head, then I'm going to go um, build an industry, change the way people's yeah. habits are around the world. Like I said, that gets me super excited. Got it. And are you able to stay close to the product? I mean, you know, one thing about Reed that I remember well, he's great at a high level in strategy. He also gets super close down and dirty in the details. Are you able to stay close to, to what the job is for, for the, the, the product manager who works for somebody who works for somebody who works for you? And how do you yeah. do that? Yeah, so interesting. So you're referring to, for those in your audience, Reed Hastings, our CEO, who's, been, who's also the founder of Netflix. And so it, that's also interesting. Part of the evolution of a company is it, it goes from small to medium to heading towards a bigger company, which is as executives of the company – 
you're forced, if you have a habit of micromanaging, you're forced out of that habit because there's so many things to look at. And yep. sometimes I know that there are CEOs of really big companies or even you know, other officers or even high-level VPs who are getting into the weeds of certain things because they have passion projects. Yep. But I would posit that sometimes they're not doing their broader job of mm -hmm. piloting the company at a higher level, and that mm -hmm. might even be a yellow flag. Yep. Because if you're doing your job piloting at a higher level, sometimes you shouldn't get into the weeds. But oh, it's so tempting, and oh, the team doesn't always appreciate it. So there are things I have passions, for example, um, I've been particularly into, but I'm still trying not to be too hands-on and uh -huh. letting my team do the job. But um, experimentations with branching narrative, more interactive content Oh, that's content cool. On I've seen some of the experiments for kids. Uh, right. Like, where you can choose your storyline, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's that's like, way cool. Kind of like a modern-day choose-your-own-adventure. So we tried it with two titles um, the last couple of months, an, a special episode of Puss in Boots yep. and a special episode of this stop-motion kind of culty fun show called Buddy Thunderstruck. And those experiments went well. I was super excited. And are so your kids young enough more. for that, or have they aged out? Yeah, damn, you're my favorite kid testing audience for mm -hmm. getting older. My daughter's 13 already, and teenage years, you know, they're a whole different thing. And yeah. um, we can we could do well, a whole other podcast on raising that's a teenager. Super cool. So so now you're innovating on st storytelling, right? Well, that, that's great. It's how to interweave. The way I look at it is like we have an amazing content team. Um, centered in LA, but more and more becoming global. And they really focus with the storytellers, but we also have an amazing technology team. The magic, the lightning in the bottle you could create as a differentiator against competition is how do you combine both of them, intertwine your expertise? And I've always thought an advantage of Netflix and something that excites me about it is we were founded as both the Silicon Valley Hollywood Company. We're not one of those traditional entertainment studios, movie studios, that are trying to get more and more into technology, or not one of those technology companies that's investing heavily now in content. We've been there from the beginning as that, and so experiments like this are, I think, very much in line with the very DNA of the company. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, a little uh, uh, lightning round. Um, so I, I, you know this to me. I have lots of theories about the different styles of product leaders. But uh -huh. if you think about the the technical skills of a product manager, I'm going to list some and, and tell me what are your. You know, I think of them as superpowers. So for a product manager, their technical skills, the management skills that let you build stuff, creative, business, marketing, design, and consumer insight or think consumer science. Where where do your superpowers live as a as a product manager? Yeah, there's there's a big um, there's a lot of gray between them. Like yeah. I'm not sure creative and design, but I fancy myself creative. Yeah, and so and I like getting involved in the ideas. There's I love being in brainstormings. I love just standing there way too long in the shower as things occur to me yep. about how to change um, the product and the business. Yeah, no, I, I think you know I always remember you as. From time to time, you could be the bull in the china shop, but you had the bold ideas that mattered. So that, that resonates. Creative. So I'm going to give you one more to pick. Which what what other word would you choose? Yeah, um, I don't. Ha I can't write a line of code. Uh -huh. So it would be unfair for me to say technical. I think I'm very comfortable talking to all kinds of technical leaders, whether they're good. data scientists, engineers, yep. and I've gotten good at that over yep. time. But if I had to, once again, we have that proverbial gun pressed up against yes, my temple, you and you're going to pull a trigger, so I, I want to live. So I'm going to pick for now. I'll, I'll go with, I think I've gotten comfortable about the business. 
how to think about the business. So a combination of the creative and the business side about how to move Netflix to keep on growing internationally. Oh, that's that's fascinating. So that's been, a, I'm guessing, a big area of growth in the last 10 years for sure. you. Yep. Okay, so we both learned the same model. That our job was to delight customers in hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways. And the margin-enhancing is a fancy way of you know deliver the business. Yes. Does that model still work for you? Have you learned some things about how to think about it a little bit differently? Uh, let me think about that. So... I think that's fair. We don't think about it. We don't use those terms. You know, different terms come in and out of yep. both within a company where you have the hot terms of the day and then they fade in and out. But we're, we're still thinking about it mostly in those ways. Um, hard to copy is always a, a weird one, though, hmm. even when we were using it back in the day, because our um, conventional wisdom back then was – the UI is easier to copy. If you design something that's really good, others are just going to take that design. We've ooh, seen ooh, that. Ooh, ooh. But you're, you're saying that was the conventional wisdom? Does it still hold true for you, or you and, think differently? Yeah, yeah. No, good question. So, And then we would say the algorithms are a secret sauce that are more underneath and harder to copy because yep. they're more subtle um, about what exactly you're doing, and there's a lot going on underneath the hood. Um, the only thing that there's some truth to that, but it's a half truth because it, sh it does short shrift um, the design side, the UI side mm -hmm. in the way that if that was totally the case, then Apple wouldn't have, you know, the biggest market cap in the yeah. world. Yeah. And, you know, so I can't totally buy into that. Mm -hmm. I buy into that partially. Um not only for motivational reasons, suddenly yep. everyone will pack up their bags and leave you on the designing yeah. UI teams. Yeah. But also I think what you want to do on the designing UI side is you always want to be bold, like yeah. I said, yeah. fall on your face sometimes, yeah. be willing to experiment, um, and then continually try stuff so you are staying ahead of others. You don't get too comfortable where you're at. And don't copy blindly from competitors. I see that too often. Mm -hmm. Well, they're the big guy. It mm -hmm. must be successful. You know, and we've seen that from us as we've gotten to be the bigger kid on the block. Others just grabbing what we have. Prove it works for you. Prove mm -hmm. it works for your customers. Mm -hmm. Prove it works for your business. Yeah. By the way, algorithms still super yeah. important to yeah. us. Yeah. Love Great. It. So uh, your growth as a leader, uh, I have a rubric where there's a number of functional leadership skills as people grow. And my first is leadership, and I call that the inspired communication of a vision. The next is management. Today, that's for you. For you, it's hiring, building, developing teams. The next is strategic thinking. The next is this ability just to deliver results, proactive results oriented, and then softer side of that is culture. And then my last is domain expertise. So, are there two superpowers on that list that that resonate that describe you and your style as a leader? Yeah, I would go with. Um the passionate, inspired leadership of a message. Um, it totally resonates. I, I like doing that. Um, I think I'm pretty good and at it. And you're a storyteller. And yes, there, yeah. there you yeah. go. Um, so that plays well for me. And if I had to pick another, I would go for either results-oriented because I'm just I'm That's you. unhealthy and competitive yep. and I like to win yep. and I hate losing. Yep. <laughs> that was when you were referring to me as bull in China shop. <laughs> oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, tried to get better. Those edges, I'm sure I, you've I try to soften better. year year over year. <laughs> we all age. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. For better and worse, let's let's focus on the better. <laughs> and um, 
I, you know, and after so many years, domain expertise plays in because that comes in with your experience. Yeah, totally. Uh, both resonate. My guess is you've gotten whip smart on the strategic thinking as well. Try. And I, I, I was fascinated that you, you really have learned a lot about the business on the other list. That's that's way cool. All right. So I'm, uh, I'm particularly enamored of what it takes to make wicked hard decisions. And I'm just curious, you can, any time frame you want, what have been some, some of the wicked hard decisions? It, and you knew I grew up in Dorchester. That's why I, I throw in the wicked. Um, some, some wicked hard decisions yeah. over the years? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's good because there's – I'll give you a couple. Okay. So one of them is Netflix, a lot of times product is very metrics-driven. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of A-B testing. We try to just see what wins. We try to stay to the core metrics. And so from the, on the member side, those core metrics are retention and streaming hours, and we stick to that. And if you keep your customers, that's great. And if you could drive more consumption of the product, they, we win the moments of truth at Netflix, and you're watching on Netflix, that's great for us. On the non-member side, on the acquisition side, it's just getting in people to do that Netflix free trial yep. and then to stick with us and become paid members after a month. And so a hard You've nicely simplified a very complicated business, and I appreciate that. Yeah, sure, go. sure. And so on the, on the challenging side, there are things that you can do that one would argue are gaming those metrics, and you still move it, and you can still have someone who's super excited mm -hmm. about getting there. And so, for example, we had a big debate around we give people a free trial. Should we remind them three days or five days before their free trial is up that they're about to becoming paid members. Mm -hmm. They gave us a credit card. Mm -hmm. And if you do that for them, you're actually going to hurt your metrics because you're reminding them and it's going to go south in that regard. Yep. So do you do that? And the answer is we did decide to do that, but that takes a lot of judgment and debate. And you do it because in the end, you're trying to burnish your brand. Mm -hmm. You're trying to create a longer lasting experience of even if someone doesn't, you know, if they quit Netflix now, they'll come back because there's another great show and they have nothing against the company. They actually have good feelings. And so we did decide and after much debate, we push out the experience now. We'll send you an email right before your free trial ends and remind you, even though that hurts the core metrics. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about how you made the decision. Was, were there sort of a good fight to make good marriages? Uh, how did it play out? Because that, that sounds like a, a, a good, interesting decision that, that big companies you know, can live with. I appreciate that. You know, the punk startup is going to do what it takes to get the next round of funding, but you're thinking about the long term and the brand, which I deeply appreciate. But how did that decision play out? So um, years ago, and this was Reed's idea, he constructed these rooms at Netflix, which are these big round rooms you know, shaped like a Coliseum style. And, you know, the smallest ones hold like 40 people. So it was in one of those round rooms. Mm -hmm. where we are very – something I try to um, expand in the company always is yep. to make a healthy, debateful culture. Mm -hmm. And so always – to make a great, debateful culture, it means it's not the most senior person in the room that's hogging all the airtime, which I think is a flaw in many different environments. It's really giving people of all kinds of thinking styles and communication styles the chance to speak up. Yep. And so and that's taken a long time to really make that stick at Netflix. And so this was one of those debates where we're all around the room. 
making sure everyone gets a word in edgewise. And after much debate, then you give the decision to, you need someone to own the decision or else you'll be swirling forever. So you have to have, in this case, a product manager who's owning the non-member experience and they're making the ultimate decision. They can be influenced by everyone else. And by the way, let me throw something in about forming a good debate culture. Part of it is I learned getting away from what I called the unhealthy Jeopardy culture. What I mean by the Jeopardy culture is picture the game show Jeopardy. The key to success on that game is not only knowing the right answers, but having your finger on the buzzer and springing right to getting your word edgewise. Now we all can relate with the following. The kind of culture where people are waiting for the very last syllable of what the person before them is going to say so they could jump in, maybe even cut off that last syllable Mm -hmm. if they're really good at it, and getting in their word. And that pretty much stops a lot of people who are uncomfortable with that style, Mm -hmm. a little more reticent, a little, you know, more introverted to ever have get a word in edgewise. So yep. I tried to cut the Jeopardy culture short a couple of years ago. We've become, we're still a very debateful culture. We still yep. sit in our round rooms. We still debate all kinds of things around product, content, marketing, and everything else around the company. We've become much more of a hand-raising culture, hmm. trying to spread the wealth, trying to get people to speak up, trying to get multiple voices in the room to be heard. So we can all learn from kindergartners. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I totally agree. That's that's very cool. Can you think of other wicked hard decisions? Um, sure. It's it's whenever things come up that go against the core metrics that aren't brain dead, and you think, okay, should we do it or not? So a lot of debates come up. You do something. Here's here's a classic because if you don't have the metrics a priori before you do the test mm-hmm. and agreed, this is what I'm trying to push. This is a clean hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I think I can move retention with this. Mm-hmm. Well, what if you don't move retention, but you move some secondary or tertiary metric? Is that good enough and you should push it out? So we have constant debates. That happens all the time. I have a weekly product strap meeting I run. And every week, you know, it seems to be another test where, yeah. you know, okay, this one's easy at move retention. Great. Roll it out. This one was negative. You know, the results were all red. Yeah. But this one moved, didn't move retention didn't move streaming, but boy, streaming from search or streaming on this genre page or that worked or promoting our originals worked better. So then suddenly it's like, do we count that? Is uh-huh. that a win? Uh-huh. And it, there's count, that always leads to debate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so um, I'm gonna try to tease out what other things might be hard today. So Netflix has a lot of its own original content that it owns. And then it's supporting a lot of other movies and TV shows from other providers. Uh, it seems to me, to some degree, the business would want you to, to merchandise more aggressively the stuff that you already own. Uh, does, does that come into conflict for you? We've had a lot of debate about how to reconcile those two goals. I see. And this is, this is where we end up. Yeah. Um, because th- that took a long time, yeah. part of our maturation, yeah. which is – when the goal in the end is as a subscription business, you really have to keep the customer happy. Yep. And your whole goal is to keep them paying month after month. So you have to keep on improving the service. So in that regard, yes, we just want to show them the best content for them, whether it's um, an original produced by Netflix or a licensed piece of content. That being said, mm-hmm. on the other side, if we have a title like Moana or Zootopia or Friends, or Walking Dead. These are huge brands that have been exploited on TV and in the movies that everyone knows about. 
And so when they see it, they go, yeah, oh, yeah, Moana, great for my kids. Yep. Oh, your friends, good macaroni and cheese comfort viewing for now. I've seen the episodes five times each. Um, Walking Dead, great stuff. But how about Ozark, which we were talking about before? Mm -hmm. How about we have a new show that's starting up today called Mindhunter um, by David Fincher. No one's ever heard of Mindhunter. I we did. I heard about it on the radio from oh, good. a reviewer. Yeah. All right. Very cool. So we're moving on. It's brand new. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. hasn't been exploded out there. It's not, you know, at the tip of everyone's tongue. Yeah. Not to mention all the stand-up comedians and documentaries. So we have to cold start those titles. Got it. Meaning we have to get people mm. at the outset even understanding what it is. So we try to balance off some many parts of the UI are just purely personalized, show you the best thing for you. Got it. But we do try to cold start our originals with what we call the virtual billboard on top, the hero treatment on top of the UI to go, new show, it's called Mindhunter. You know, so that's the way we think about it. My question is as follows. How do you think about the balancing act of optimization and innovation or optimization and the bold bets? How do you think about that balancing act? All right, big trap is when you do A-B testing, you get to Marissa Meyer's Shades of Blue, and you're going really incremental, yeah, and you're moving. optimization. Pixel yeah. by pixel. Yeah. We yeah. moved it up one one-thousandth of one percent. Yay, it's a win. But you're not really understanding what are bigger things you could be doing. Mm -hmm. And so um, years back, came up with the term of mountain testing, mm -hmm. which is multivariate A-B testing where don't just change the color, don't just move the button from the left side of the screen to the right, yep. but how about if you changed the whole way you approach it? And so radically different approaches, um, and then see, without controlling for every variable, let's just see if that works. Mm -hmm. So encourage the team. What I do to encourage my team is I want them to have a mixed portfolio. Yep. I want them to have more incremental, smaller bets with mm -hmm. more limited upside, but probably more conservative, more likely to win. Yep. And then more radical, change the whole game kind of constructions of how we're presenting Netflix to the consumer and see if those work. Yeah, and I get it. And I, those definitions are fungible, but just as a quickie, what percent do you want them to be doing the radical, you know, in terms of projects versus those smaller optimizations? Is there a healthy way to think about a portfolio? Well, it's funny. I have my own portfolio at the next level up, yep. which is I want to hire people who tend to ah, be totally. – some of them are going to be more incremental. Yeah. Some you've of them are going to be more radical. You've got your bowling china shops and you've got your tuners. Yeah. Totally. And yeah. so even within them, sure, those tuners, as you call them, I will encourage them – to take bigger bets and be bolder. And I'll tell the other ones, try something small occasionally um, and keep a volume of stuff tried as well. But overall, I, there, I wish I had a clear-cut formula. There isn't one. Got it. So looking forward, is there some stuff that you're particularly excited about, Todd? Yeah, so there is, there is a lot. And a lot of it has to do with aim high, aim low. And here's how I think about that. As technology has gotten better, as bandwidth has gotten better in consumers' homes and so forth, you can try things in your experience that use up more bandwidth and are bolder and heavier, but maybe are more informative or helpful to the consumer. An example of that is leveraging, we're a video service, mm -hmm. leveraging video more to help consumers make the decision, a Netflix member, about what they want to watch. 
you'll see more and more. You're already seeing it in F, on the Netflix user interface on a lot of TV screens, and you'll see it on other devices as well, about auto-playing video that helps you decide what you want to watch. The reason that didn't succeed historically, part of it was technical. Mm-hmm. People just didn't have the devices with enough memory. They didn't have the internet bandwidth. That's the aim high. Yeah. Also on aim high, we're doing a lot more with just video quality, with um, HDR, with 4K to have that. It's astounding that you can get the best picture now over internet TV, much better than cable, broadcast, etc. So that's aim high, but we're expanding globally. Things have changing radically, and now we're you know deeply penetrated into Brazil. We're trying to figure out how to make India work. And obviously, even people who are more affluent in those countries, the infrastructure in those countries, it's getting better, but it's much worse than in North America and Europe. And so aim low is... How do we get it working just good enough for people to enjoy enjoy streaming video Mm -hmm. um, in places where the Internet isn't very good? And we can deliver in, you know, uh, video that doesn't buffer at very low bit rate now. We're getting really sophisticated at doing that. And also our UIs, having it load more quickly when you have lower bandwidth. So it's playing the low side and the high side. That's become very important for us as we go globally. Yeah. Okay. So I'd love to close it out. Uh, Everybody learns through both success and failure. So I'd love it if you could reflect on something in the last 12 years you've learned through success. That might be important to folks that are listening. And on the other side, what's something big that you learned through failure? One of the attributes that we highly value at Netflix is curiosity. And that's not true for all companies. Some companies are much more secretive. Pay attention to what you're working on. Don't ask questions about others are working on. But we're very open with data. We're very open with information across Netflix. And I have found that very much encouraging my own curiosity, encouraging the curiosity of my team and those around me is super important. Mm-hmm. Ask questions, understand the product, understand the business, you know, See if you could be inspired by things that aren't so linearly related to exactly what you're doing yep. and see how you can leverage what you do to help other parts of the business and so forth. So that is a part of my success. And totally. That's and I, just a, as a quick follow-on, so I, I, it resonates. I know you well. How have you maintained that level of intellectual curiosity in the same company for 12 years? How do you do it? Yeah, why wasn't I out two years later like I was planning originally? Um, the company has grown. The, tw- the company is 25 or 30 times bigger. We've had multiple pivots as a company. The mission has changed. We're constantly taking risks, but we're, we're still gamblers at heart, and we're yeah. still going to try things that are really new and different, and so that's given new challenges. Got that's it. really kept it lively. I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm shocked I've been there 12 no, years. No, no, that's I great. didn't expect it. Okay, so let's go to the deep, dark side, something you've learned through mistake or failure. Yeah, so um, you refer to bull in China shop. Everyone, you know, it, it's funny because I manage all kinds of folks. I manage consumer insights experts, designers, um, I manage people who are really, you know, deep in the metadata and experts on the content. But I started as a product manager, and then I became a, the manager of the product management team. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's funny. You try not to hire your, yourself. It's really important to hire people who are better at you at things that you don't do well and diversify. But there are a lot of product managers 
who are successful, who are just A personalities, especially at a company that where we're looking for talent density. I call them angst-ridden overachievers. Yeah, I, I like it. Angst-ridden overachievers. I'll, I'll go with that as well. But these A personalities, you know, and I, I definitely put file myself away that as these angst-ridden, what do you call them? Angst-ridden overachievers. <laughs> angst-ridden overachievers. Yeah, I, yeah. I've raised two of them as children. I'm sure you have too. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, um, <laughs> You have to, sometimes you want to go deep. You know, one of the faults in that way is to be overly controlling, mm -hmm. to get in, to not give others enough ownership over the projects, whether that's yep. you're a, an individual contributing product managers, working with engineers and designers, mm -hmm. and giving them enough ownership so they feel more there's blood in the game and they're invested in your project. And that goes when you, you know, you're an executive at the company, whether yep. that's your colleagues and peers as executives, whether that's your team. And so... That was an important lesson because I would want to have my hands in and I'd want to control it and I'd want to see it's going to move this way to that way and so forth. And I think I've gotten better at modulating myself and not trying to put every bit of my brain and blood cells into a project and more trying to get the best out of others. Yeah, okay. I call that letting letting go as you grow. And it, 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 that is an important learning and it, it sounds like you've done it exceptionally well. Todd, I'd like to thank you. As a Netflix member, I thank you. I, I continue to absolutely enjoy the service. I know my family does. Even my Luddite wife does. So thank you very much for being with us here today and sharing your insights with the world. My pleasure. Thank you, Gib. Thanks to our guest for joining. If you enjoyed this episode of Product Decoded, please take a minute to share it with your colleagues and leave a review on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Spiro Ventures and Product Leader Summit. Learn more at Spiro.vc and ProductLeaderSummit.com. Thanks for listening to Product Decoded, and we'll see you next time.